Hey, everybody. It is Friday, March 1st. Yes, we're here now in the third month of 2024. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. Happy Friday. I'm Mo Shwanunu. Happy Friday. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how was your leap day? Dare I say, Mosh, it felt like any other day. And I realized we got so excited about leap day that we forgot to wish each other and our audience a happy Friday Eve. I mean, listen, you only get a leap day once every four (laughs) years, most of the time, as we found out yesterday. And so I think that took priority over Friday Eve. But listen, we have another chance next week. We don't have another leap day for four years. Jill, we have a number of people in the Mo News community who are referred to as leaplings. They were born on February 29th, and I had no idea the challenges they face, including like at doctor's offices, et cetera, uh, putting their birth date. Sometimes they have to put their year into a computer system first in order for February 29th to be available. And then there's all the questions that they get, you know, all the time. Uh, you know, they, they can't go anywhere without people wondering what life is like as a leapling. So they live an interesting life, Jill, but they, they can't just go about the motions like the rest of us. The struggle is real for leaplings. <laughs> That's what they tell me. <laughs> That's what they tell me. The 5 million leaplings in the world who are born on February 29th. I'm not a leapling, so it, it, maybe I'm speaking out of turn. But I do think the inconveniences... It feels like that's a small price to pay for being a leapling, which is very cool and having something really cool to talk about. So right here, folks, you have two non-leaplings telling leaplings, enjoy being (laughs) you, enjoy being special. The leaplings listening to this most are thinking, oh, those in the media, they're so out of touch. (laughs) They don't know what we go through. Okay, with that, let's get to some news here. A political split screen. Donald Trump and Joe Biden make dueling border visits, what they had to say. Meanwhile, a federal judge blocks a sweeping new immigration law in Texas. To the Middle East, the latest on a potential hostage deal or lack of a potential hostage deal as the death toll in Gaza tops 30,000. That wildfire in Texas now the largest in the state's history. The Alabama legislature voting to restore IVF access in the state, but this may not be the end of the story there. In Russia, the funeral of opposition leader Alexei Navalny is slated to be held in Moscow today. To Saudi Arabia, which continues to try to diversify its economy and push into sports. We'll tell you which one. A group of moms in England start a movement to ban smartphones for kids until they're a bit older. We'll tell you about it. Yeah, it follows some of the moves here, Jill. And I understand Gen Zers are trying to make flip phones cool again. And Taylor Swift and Beyonce giving a huge boost to ticket sales at the movie theater. And now other musicians apparently lining up to make movies about their concert tours. Plus, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend, what we are watching, reading, and eating. It's pistachio week here on the pod. (laughs) It is. Okay, let's start at the U.S.-Mexico border, where both President Biden and former President Trump made dueling and separate trips on Thursday. And it comes as voters say that the migrant crisis, with a record number of migrants crossing into the U.S. illegally, is a top issue for them, both blaming each other for the crisis. Former President Trump railing against President Biden and his border policies from Eagle Pass, Texas, Trump blaming recent increases in immigration for what he called, quote, migrant crime. There is little evidence, though, to back up that claim that migrants are behind a crime wave. There have been, though, some high profile crimes committed by people in the country illegally, including the murder of 22 year old Lakin Riley. She was found dead after jogging on the University of Georgia campus. 
Her suspected killer is an undocumented immigrant from Venezuela. Meanwhile, President Biden calling on lawmakers to pass that bipartisan border deal that could not get enough support in the Senate this month. The White House spent months negotiating the deal with Republican and Democratic senators. But again, it just could not get enough support to pass in the Senate, mostly because of opposition from Donald Trump, who didn't want to give Biden a political win ahead of the upcoming presidential election. Yeah, and it was interesting because Biden, about 350 miles away from Trump on the border on Thursday, had a dare to Trump. Join me. Stop opposing me. Let's work on this issue together, was the message you heard from Biden that was down in Brownsville, Texas, uh, which is a slightly more stable part of the border than Eagle Pass, where Trump went. Clearly, each of them wanted to uh, reinforce the narrative they're trying to push on the border. Biden, that things are under control. Trump, that things are out of control. So Biden saying to Trump, let's get together here. Let's do a bipartisan initiative, set politics aside. Uh, We need to act. He called on Speaker Mike Johnson to, quote, show a little spine. Johnson right now following basically the orders of Donald Trump when it comes to whether to do something or in this case, nothing about the border in an election year. Uh, The Trump people, by the way, pushing back, saying instead of taking responsibility here, Biden is trying to shift blame on everybody else. Uh, He needs to take responsibility for the border crisis, for the death of Lake and Riley and use his executive power to shut down the border today. That's something Republicans have been saying is, Biden, you have the power. You don't need anything from Congress. And the truth is somewhere in between. Biden could do more independently, but really needs Congress for funding and for changing laws here. It comes as there is an ongoing fight between Texas and the federal government over what to do about the border. Texas passed a law recently that ordered the state government to allow law enforcement to arrest and detain people who have crossed the border illegally. That's been taken to court because dealing with the border is a federal policy. It has been for 200 plus years. You can't have uh, a dozen states on the northern and southern border all having their own policies towards Canada and Mexico. So that's been the precedent here. And it appears that at least for now, a lower court judge agrees with the Biden administration saying uh, this law cannot proceed right now. Each state cannot pass its own immigration laws. That's going to be appealed by Texas here. It was supposed to take effect this law on Tuesday, uh, the state arguing that the feds aren't taking up their responsibility and they have to do something about a, quote, invasion on their border. That's what they're saying. This is a invasion. The feds aren't doing anything. And so Texas has got to take things into their own hands. But again, for now, the uh, law is frozen by the courts and uh, we'll see what happens. The governor of Texas, Abbott, he was out there with Trump on Thursday on the border, and he says they're not going to back down. They are going to continue to challenge Biden about the crisis they say he has brought upon the country. Okay, now to the latest in the war between Israel and Hamas. It appears that President Biden was being overly optimistic when he said a new hostage deal could be reached by the end of this weekend, potentially effective on Monday. Well, he was eating ice cream at the time, Jill. That tends to make most people optimistic. Well, Hamas saying there has been no breakthrough and that it is not accepting the current proposal. Negotiators from the United States, Qatar, Egypt and Israel have been trying to hammer out a deal. It would see the release of some of the roughly 130 hostages that are held in Gaza since October 7th. Israel says about a quarter of them have already been killed. Now, this would be an exchange for a temporary ceasefire, the release of potentially hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, including those convicted of murdering Israelis, and more aid for civilians in Gaza. Israel has said that the goal was to reach a deal before the start of Ramadan, which is March 10th. 
But again, Hamas at this point not accepting the terms of a deal. Yeah, Hamas wants guarantees that they get to stick around after this war, that the war stops immediately, that all Israeli troops uh, leave Gaza for once, and there's a complete end to the war. That's a non-starter for Israel. They say they cannot live aside a Gaza Strip that is still run by Hamas here. The two sides far apart. They are hoping to get something done before that holiday coming up in just about 10 days now. And it comes as the death toll in Gaza, we learned this week, has surpassed 30,000 since October 7th. Those estimates come from the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza. The U.S. and some international organizations back up that number. The question is really the breakdown of who was killed. The Israelis say that about half of those killed have been members of Hamas. The Hamas side saying that about two-thirds of those killed were children and women. So the truth probably somewhere in between here. Uh, the Israelis saying that these numbers show, while again, 30,000 and 15,000 civilians is horrific, that based on modern warfare, civilian to combatant killed ratios, that this is much better than a number of recent modern wars, a one-to-one ratio, if you will, that in the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, that the U.S. conducted, that about five to eight civilians for every combatant was killed. And again, this is one-to-one, but still, you're talking about war in horrific terms here and civilians dead. And so it comes now more than four months in, and you have uh, a lot of countries around the world saying, uh, no matter what, this war needs to end immediately. The Israelis saying they're not going to stop here until the hostages are released. Hamas gives up its arms. Hamas saying that they ain't going to stop defending what they have left of Gaza. As far as 30,000, to just put it in uh, proportion here, that is one person killed for every 73 Palestinians that lived in Gaza before the war. The population in Gaza was 2.2 million. Uh, There continues to be international pressure here on the Israelis to stop the offensive. But again, uh, they say until there's a deal for the hostages, until they're home, that the uh, war continues until they believe they can achieve victory. And it comes as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza continues to get worse with a lack of food, water and medicine. The U.N. says about 70 percent of people cannot access clean drinking water. And at least a quarter of the population is one step away from famine. And case in point, Hamas officials in Gaza saying more than 100 people were killed and hundreds more injured in Gaza City at an aid convoy There are opposing accounts about what happened. Hamas says Israeli forces opened fire on a crowd of people waiting for that aid. Israel says most of the casualties were a result of a stampede as residents scrambled to reach the convoy of aid trucks in a separate area. They say dozens of Palestinians at a different point started to move toward an IDF tank and troops that were stationed at a military checkpoint away from the convoy They say soldiers fired warning shots in the air and gunshots at the legs of those who continued to move toward the troops. And the army did release surveillance footage of the incident to back up its claims. Yeah, the Israelis saying that they're responsible for about eight to 10 of the deaths of the 100 plus who were killed in that incident. This was a separate group moving on the Israeli troops. And the vast majority was that stampede around 30 aid trucks. Nonetheless, It all speaks to a very desperate situation in Gaza. The Biden administration was asked about this on Thursday. The State Department said simply, too many Palestinians died on Thursday. Uh, From the aerial footage, you see right away how incredibly desperate things are. People are swarming these trucks because they're hungry, because they need food. Uh, And this is an issue, Jill, in northern Gaza. This was the area where the war basically started back in October that's been evacuated for months. But people are gradually trying to get in there. But it's become very difficult to get aid into northern Gaza because of the ongoing war. Uh, Hamas also happened to be the police force at one point, right? They ran the government there. They are gone. They now have masked men 
who have been stealing things from trucks. And so there have been fights breaking out, firefights breaking out every time Atrex go in there and then add in the Israeli military authority there. They have final authority on what trucks go through, when they go through. There's just a complete lack of civil infrastructure right now in Gaza. And you saw that sadly, tragically play out yesterday in the Strip. Uh, the U.S. now saying that they're considering airdropping food into areas of the Gaza Strip they cannot get into, though they admit that is not ideal because the best way to get a large amount of aid is through trucks. But of course, between armed gangs, Hamas, all the various issues, that's difficult. The Jordanians have already been doing some airdrops. The Canadians are also considering doing the same thing. All right, we have a lot more news to get to, including the speed read, but I want to begin with our sponsor this week, Good Shop. You might have heard of Good Shop, that is CHOP, C-H-O-P. They offer fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door. We've talked about them on this podcast before, vacuum-sealed, frozen at peak freshness, and this includes more than 70 high-quality cuts, 100% grass-fed ribeyes, prime filet mignon. They also do sustainable and wild-caught seafood, salmon, cod, scallops, shrimps, and more. We cooked the salmon here Sunday night. It was excellent. And when I say we, Jill, I mean Alex, my <laughs> wife, was an incredible cook. Uh, but the salmon was excellent. And unlike many other companies, Good Shop sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries. And so it also lets you support local family farms and independent ranchers here in the U.S. And it doesn't cost a fortune. The calculation here, the average price of a meal via Good Shop, $3.74. They pride themselves on identifying meat that has no antibiotics, no added hormones, no artificial ingredients, and they do offer a 100% money-back guarantee if you don't love what you're getting from Good Shop. So go to goodshop.com, that is G-O-O-D, good, shop, C-H-O-P.com, slash monews120, and use the code monews120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. Again, the code is monews120 over at goodchop.com slash monews120 for $120 off. Everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Moshe and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They're completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 1-5% off your order. Time now for the speed read from Politico. Alabama's Republican-controlled legislature voted Thursday to give doctors who provide in vitro fertilization 
civil and criminal immunity for any death or damage to embryos. The votes in the House and the Senate come nearly two weeks after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children, igniting concerns about the impact on some states' personhood laws on IVF. And it has put pressure on pro-life Republicans grappling with how to convey their views on abortion ahead of the 2024 election. This new legislation aims to provide fertility clinics that have paused IVF services since the court's ruling the legal clarity that would be needed to resume operations, although GOP lawmakers intend to pursue a more thorough review of state laws on the issue. Yeah, we've talked about the backlash they got immediately after this ruling. And so, Joe, this passed pretty overwhelmingly. 94 in support, six against, three abstaining. This legislation would give immunity to persons who provide goods and services related to IVF, though the exemption does not apply to all situations, including a a mission or act that is intentional about destroying those embryos, which was the case in the scenario that the court ruled on here. Nonetheless, their hope is to get IVF restarted here. Even Republicans in the state who are very pro-life uh, support the personhood amendment that you know says that uh, an embryo is a human, believe that uh, this is politically sensitive and this is not working out in their favor. IVF is very much a majority issue. Uh, the vast majority of Americans support it. So uh, they've gotten into it. There were a few lawmakers who voted against it. This is expected to sail through the Senate here. And then they got to figure out how to nuance the law. At the same time, Florida had a similar law to Alabama that they were about to pass, a personhood amendment declaring that an embryo is a human. But seeing how this was interpreted by the court in Alabama, the Florida legislature, the sponsor of it, says, we're going to go back to the drawing board and make sure we actually uh, think about all scenarios as we write this bill On a national level, this is also being discussed over in the U.S. Senate. There was an attempt this week by Senate Democrats to force a vote on a bill that would protect IVF nationwide. A couple of Republicans blocked it, claiming the bill was full of what they call poison pills and was overreaching. So Democrats seizing the opportunity here to make this an issue into the campaign, saying this is a slippery slope from banning abortion. Republicans seeing the political consequences of the bills at the state level and are sort of many in leadership right now hitting the brakes on uh, legislation related to this issue. From CBS News, the Smokehouse Creek fire in Texas that broke out on Monday has since extended to more than 1.1 million acres, quickly becoming the largest and most destructive in state history. Fire officials say that as of Thursday, the fire is only about 3% contained. Earlier in the week, the Texas A&M Forest Service increased the state's wildland fire preparedness level to a three out of five, meaning that, quote, wildfire activity is impacting several regions of the state as the result of drought, dry vegetation or frequent fire weather events. There are at least five major active wildfires throughout the state, although the Smokehouse Creek fire is by far the largest. So, Moshe, at this point, that fire is engulfing an area that is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Just to give you perspective on uh, the size of Texas, you could fit Rhode Island into Texas 220 times, but still a massive fire in Texas. They have put out a number or some have naturally gone out this week. 140 fires this week across Texas, nearly 1.3 million square miles total burned. But those major active fires continue to be a concern here. As of late Thursday, at least two people now have died uh, due to these fires. That includes an 83-year-old woman, Joyce Blinkenship, her grandson speaking out to CBS News. And Jill, Texas isn't alone here. A number of fires are also burning in Oklahoma, where more than 100,000 acres are burning right now. 
heading overseas from NBC News, Russian President Vladimir Putin stepping up his threats against Western countries Thursday, warning that if they send their own troops into Ukraine, they risk global nuclear war. Putin issued that threat at the top of his annual State of the Nation address ahead of a presidential election next month that he is all but certain to win. Because he determines how much he gets to win by in Russia. Yeah, Mosh Putin has made threats like this over the past two years since that full-scale invasion of Ukraine, although this week's warning in the eyes of some observers was his most pointed to date. His comments coming after French President Emmanuel Macron suggested this week that NATO allies could send troops to Ukraine in the future instead of just funding and arming the country indirectly. Yeah, Putin for the past couple of years likes to say the word nuclear and talk about his nuclear weapons. Some people I spoke to Thursday said there's no reason for new concern here. In fact, the White House National Security Council is saying they have no reason to adjust their nuclear posture. This is Putin, Putining, if you will. As you've gone through this war, he's said to the U.S. and the West multiple times, like, don't help Zelensky or nuclear war could happen. Don't do this. Don't send them these weapons or nuclear war could happen. So this is just the latest in him scarily invoking nuclear weapons. But again, uh, the feeling is that there's no reason to start building your bunker in the backyard, anybody. So you're saying his bark is bigger than his bite, but it is still (laughs) a bark. We shouldn't totally ignore it. Listen, at the end of the day, there's two countries on Earth with more nuclear weapons than it takes to destroy the entire planet. Yours truly, United States of America and Russia. And so when somebody with a thousand plus nuclear missiles uh, says that, you do pay attention to it, as we discussed on our text message thread today. But my reaction to Putin is like, oh, Putin, you keep you like to throw (laughs) this out there and scare us. But I'm kind of over it at this point. By the way, the underlying issue, we do this if we would send troops there. There's no indication the U.S. is anywhere near sending troops to Ukraine. In fact, they can't even agree right now to send weapons to Ukraine anymore. It's so funny, just a little background on how the sausage gets made here at the Mo News podcast. We have this text chain back and forth about what stories we want to cover on the podcast and the newsletter. So I had mentioned the nuclear threat, and I was going to even write, Mo, you don't need to say it. It's Putin, Putining. (laughs) He he said it before, and I just, I kind of like got distracted, and then I came back and I looked, and you had said... Nothing to see here. You know me well enough by now, Jill. You're like, Mosh, I got to share this headline, but I know how you're going to feel about it. Also happening in Russia today, the funeral of longtime Putin critic Alexei Navalny. He died in that Arctic penal colony on February 16th. And what his family and team say was a Putin directed killing. That is something that the Kremlin is denying. His wife says about the funeral, quote, I am not sure yet whether it will be peaceful or whether police will arrest those who have come to say goodbye to my husband. Yeah, there's a lot of pushback. The family, you know, knows how many supporters he had across Russia and wanted him to be honored in public and have the opportunity for people uh, who followed him, who believed in him to be able to pay their respects. He was a rare voice of dissent in Russia, very prominent. But over the last decade, you've seen Putin stamp out most forms of opposition. In some cases, uh, they die by poisoning. Remember, Navalny was poisoned, but miraculously survived. Others go to prison like Navalny. Others are thrown out of windows, literally. This is what Putin has done for independent media, for free speech, for anyone who opposes him. He does have this election coming up for what would be his fifth term. He changed the law so he could be president again. So the only question is whether he's going to win by 80%, 70%. Jill, I had Paul Starobin. He's a longtime journalist, former Moscow bureau chief for Business Week, uh, on our premium podcast. We put that out yesterday. Uh, talking about his book. Uh, He's got a new book out on Putin's exiles 
Navalny was part of his book, as well as other exiles who've been speaking out, despite the threat of death, poisoning, etc., by the Putin regime. So I think if you're interested in this subject matter and you're not already a member of Mo News Premium, please join. You can listen to that podcast over on our premium podcast feed. By joining Mo News Premium, mo.news slash premium, you can support us, support our independent journalism, support all the free stuff we do for you every week, the five podcasts, the five newsletters, the hundreds of Instagram posts, but then also get the members-only Instagram account. That's where we answer your questions. You get deep dives on subjects. You get weekend news all weekend long over on that Instagram feed, and you get the premium pod. Again, mo.news slash premium. All right, from the Semaphore newsletter, Saudi Arabia has bought the naming rights to men's professional tennis rankings. The kingdom's investment is its latest move into global sports, and it comes while the Saudi-backed Live Golf League is still negotiating with the PGA Tour over their merger, which is still not a done deal. Yeah, so the ATP rankings will soon be known as the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund ATP rankings. They were the Pepperstone rankings. The Saudis here... Uh, agreeing to a five-year partnership with ATP. And the sports push is a key pillar here for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He realizes that the writing is on the wall here for oil, and they're trying to shift the economy in Saudi Arabia towards new avenues, towards some new things that include sports. So he's got Formula One racing. He's building that up and the relationships there. Golf, as you mentioned, and then here in tennis. Jill, it has faced criticism. Uh, a number of tennis professionals uh, and tennis greats actually were pushing against this, saying, do not get involved with the Saudis. We have concerns about their human rights abuses in the country. Remember, among other things, same-sex relations are punishable by death or flogging in Saudi Arabia. Authorities actually confiscate rainbow-colored toys and clothing in the country. Uh, they have been engaged in Saudi Arabia in some social reforms, including giving women the right to drive in recent years. Uh, they also dismantled male guardianship laws until recently in Saudi Arabia. If a woman was to want to travel around the country, she had to be accompanied by her husband or a male relative. Women are still required to dress modestly, though even gender segregation in public places, which was a thing in Saudi Arabia, has been eased. Uh, women and men now allowed to be in the same movie theater, attend concerts together, which again, until recently, was not possible, though there continue to be major issues when it comes to human rights. From CNBC, in the final three months of 2023, AMC, the movie chain, saw its profit nearly triple compared to the same period a year before. And the CEO says, quote, literally all of that growth was tied to concert films from Taylor Swift and Beyonce. So that's not like a literally like the kids say it like literally this is like this is actually literally. Like, literally. Moshe, I think we're all a little bit guilty of literally overusing the word literally. <laughs> literally. Yes, when it's not literally. <laughs> when it's when it's in, literally figuratively. But in this case, AMC is like, no, 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 literally, <laughs> we would not have grown without Taylor and Beyonce last year. Yeah, so Adam Aaron, the CEO, saying that the two movies added greatly not only to AMC's bottom line, but to movie theater success across the entire industry. Swift's film alone grossed more than $200 million, making it the highest grossing documentary or concert film of all time by AMC's count. Yeah, so you have the Taylor Swift Eras Tour film. You had the Renaissance Beyonce film. Uh, both of them were released in Q4 last year and came uh, after the incredible success of both of their tours. AMC's phones are ringing off the hook Jill, I don't know if literally off the hook because we don't have those phones anymore, <laughs> but that was the phrase they bing, used. Bing. It, I mean, that's what I'm picturing. Off, they're ringing off the hook right now. They're literally off the hook. Jill, a lot of artists apparently want their concerts turned into films here. 
So Disney is also looking to get in on this, on the streaming front. The CEO, Bob Iger, says an extended version of Swift's tour will be out later this month, March 15th on Disney+. Plus. They're calling it, not surprisingly, Taylor's version of the film. So I guess Taylor put out the film, but now Taylor is doing a Taylor's version of the film. So look out for that on Disney coming soon. So my prediction, as the phones are ringing off the hook, is that perhaps <laughs> is that maybe we'll get a Madonna movie because she's on tour right now. And I think that that would be one that everyone would want to watch. At least I would. It appeals to a certain generation. Are you calling me old, Moshe? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just skeptical if your daughter is going to want to watch the Madonna film with you. Well, everyone knows the parents have the purse strings. There you go. All right. Speaking of parents from The Guardian, more than 4,000 parents in the UK have joined a group committed to barring young children from having smartphones as concerns grow about online safety and the impact of social media on mental health. So the WhatsApp group, Smartphone Free Childhood, was created by two moms in response to their fears around children's smartphone use and the norm of giving kids smart devices when they go to secondary school or middle school. The moms hoped that the movement would embolden parents to delay giving their kids smartphones until they were at least 14 years old with no social media access until they were 16. And they expected just a small group of friends to, as they say, quote, help empower each other. But it turned into this nationwide campaign with thousands of members underscoring the concerns that many parents have about kids and smartphones. Jill, it sounds like the uh, campaign here in the U.S. called Wait Until 8th, as in Wait Until 8th Grade. Uh, that has tens of thousands of parents in the U.S. making that pledge for their kids. Back across the Atlantic, over in the U.K., recent research found that 91% of kids own a smartphone by the time they're 11, and nearly half of them have a smartphone by the time they're 9. The parents in the U.K. saying their goal is to change the norm here, that we've learned our lessons from smartphones, from the first group of kids that have gotten smartphones at a very young age. And they think it would be the right move to delay at least until they're 14. So again, wait until eighth, pretty similar uh, to what you're seeing here in the US. I think what they're saying is really interesting because nobody wants to be the parent of the only kid in school who doesn't have a phone um, because yeah. that, that would be really difficult for them. But if, as they say, even 20%, 30% of kids don't have phones, it would be a, a much easier decision. Yeah, I feel like it's a version of when we were growing up. I mean, there were a couple of kids I knew that didn't have TV in the house or didn't have cable. And it was very hard to like be on the cultural zeitgeist or, you know, everyone in school in the 90s talking about what's on MTV. And uh, I had a buddy, Shane, who didn't have cable at home. And so couldn't make those references. Shane, love you. I don't know if you <laughs> podcast today. <laughs> Shane, <laughs> poor over, Shane. Shane would, I'd go over there and they had an antenna on the TV and you could get like Channel 7 and Channel 5 in Chicago and sometimes CBS <laughs> Channel 2, but you couldn't really get it. But we also didn't have cable till I was in sixth grade. So it was a little less of an issue for me in middle school. But the problem is real. And by the way, it's also an issue in classrooms because some teachers are like, pull out your... A cell phone right now and use the following app. And so the goal here is to band together and ensure that, you know, we're all in it together. Uh, we can't let a couple kids get it and then the rest can't get it. And so you're seeing this movement and it certainly appears to have some momentum behind it. Let's get Shane on the premium podcast. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and talk about how it impacted him that his mother didn't let him have cable through high school. <laughs> Couldn't talk about MTV. Uh, I'm trying to think what else was on cable. Comedy Basically Central, everything. ESPN. That was peak cable, everybody. Late 90s. 
All right, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for we are watching, reading, and eating. Mosh, kick it off. What are you watching? So a couple things. One, Jenny Slate, the comedian, uh, she's put out some good stuff uh, through the years. She has a new stand-up special over on Amazon. And then there's a series called Genius Anthology over on Disney+, and their latest focus is MLK and Malcolm X. So interested in checking that out. What are you watching? Okay, Mosh, I watched this week The Greatest Night in Pop. It's a documentary on Netflix about the making of the 1985 song, We Are the World. Oh, my mom was telling me about this. Me and Deb, we've got the same taste. (laughs) You guys are on it. (laughs) So it's told by some of the people who made it happen, from Lionel Richie, he was the person who co-wrote We Are the World with Michael Jackson. They interviewed Bruce Springsteen, Cyndi Lauper, Kenny Rogers. I will say the archival footage alone makes it worth the watch, just I mean, the biggest names in music all in this one room, Bob Dylan. It's really fascinating. You didn't mention one of my favorite parts when Joe Cocker gets his solo in it. He's like, we are the world. (laughs) Remember Joe Cocker's voice? Anyway, uh, I got to check that out too. It's it's going on my list, Joel. You and Debbie have convinced me. (laughs) Well, what's nice about it too is that it's only like 90 minutes or so. So you're not committing to this ten part series about something. It's it, you could get you could knock it out in a night. It was one event. <laughs> they sang it in one year. It's a couple minutes long. I think ninety minutes. That that sounds about right. Okay, Mosh. What uh, light beach read do you have this weekend? <laughs> well, I mentioned it briefly in the pod earlier, but I'll mention again. Putin's Exiles by Paul Sterabin. It's all about. Well, it's in the title: the exiles of Vladimir Putin uh, and the Russian opposition movement. And so I just finished that, and you can listen to my interview about uh, the state of Russia post Alexei Navalny over on the Premium podcast. So join today, mo.news/premium. Jill, what are you reading? So I am reading an article from the Free Press called "Why the Kids Aren't All Right." Oh, a light beach read for you this weekend too. <laughs> uh, so Barry Weiss interviewed Abigail Schreier. She wrote a book called "Bad Therapy: Why the Kids Aren't Growing Up." So basically, it looks at why American kids as they say, who are the freest, most privileged kids in history are also the saddest, most anxious, depressed, and medicated generation on record. And Schreier is arguing that it is not just social media and smartphones, which she says are terrible. But she looks at whether this cultural rethink and the advent of therapy culture, gentle parenting, and teaching kids about social-emotional learning is actually making our kids worse. I linked on my Instagram, uh, Jill R. Wagner, to Barry Weiss's podcast that she did with Schreier. And I heard from so many parents, I was asking, you know, what do you guys think about this? Especially, I was asking for people who work in schools and work with kids, what they thought. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fascinating. It, it really is an interesting discussion. I think the consensus was that most people who wrote me say they agree with a lot of what she says, but not everything. It's an interesting point, Jill, that all the focus on emotional well-being and mental health may have actually had an adverse effect on mental health, or at least not helped. Right. One of her points is that if you're calling everything trauma, kids start to think that they have trauma and then they they, it's harder to get over that trauma. Anyway, it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting listen. Yeah. And now to what we are eating. And I think we might both be (laughs) eating the same thing thanks to um, wonderful pistachios. But tell us about it. I think we've picked different flavors though (laughs) uh, for pistachio week. So Earlier this week, if you weren't listening to the pod earlier this week, one of the days was World Pistachio Day. I've initially pronounced it pistachio. 
It became a whole thing. The folks at Wonderful Pistachio, Pistachio, you guys win. Uh, sent us pistachios, pistachios. Uh, Jill, I've been digging into the chili roasted. What are you liking right now? The honey roasted, a little sweet, okay, sweet. a little salty. We are loving it um, in my house. And we should note, this is not a paid sponsorship. We have They just no. were kind enough to send us a ton of pistachios. No money, just pistachios, <laughs> just a lot of pistachios. Pay us in snacks. That's what we'll take. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Jill? We're headed down to my mother-in-law's in South Florida next week. So I'll see you from the sunshine for Monday's pod. Greetings from Del Boca Vista, Mosh. Enjoy. <laughs> Just FYI, by the way, because I asked <laughs> someone in the office if they got the reference. They're like, no. I was oh like, no, God. Del Boca Vista doesn't actually exist. <laughs> it's a Seinfeld <laughs> reference. So for those of you looking for me in Boca Raton, I will not be there because it's a, that's a made up Seinfeld place. We'll be just, uh, just a bit south there in Aventura. All right, everyone. Have a great weekend. Mosh, safe travels. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.